Proverbs 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To discern the sayings of understanding. To receive instruction on wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Oh, fathers, we open up a new book this morning for us here at the bridge. Continuing, Lord, as you know in our, in our trek through the Bible, uh, Lord, I just, I just pray that your hand of blessing will be on us. I'm excited to, to get into this book, um, to take this now new and fresh direction. Lord, as much as, as we love being in the Psalms and all the time that we were able to bask there and worship and praise and, and the glory of your name, Father, this is timely, I believe, and right for us as a fellowship and I know for, for me as an individual. Father... Your word says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. And so, this morning as we open the book of Proverbs, we are asking for your wisdom. We're not asking for a wisdom that comes from below, but the wisdom that comes from above. The wisdom, Father, that takes us beyond ourselves. Because left to our own devices, Lord, we are fools. And we need what you offer. We need clarity and understanding and discretion and insight and prudence. We need your wisdom, Lord. And so I pray over the next several weeks as we study through this book, uh, you would bring this and that we would be open to it. May we not miss a single prompting of your spirit. May we not miss your teaching of this great word. And we thank you again, Lord, as we often do, for bringing your word to us, that we might grow in our love for you and our relationship, Jesus, with you. And in these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Fresh off the book of praises, we open the Mishle. Mishle, it means Proverbs of, and that is the Hebrew title for the book of Proverbs, the Mishle, and we immediately will see a striking difference. In fact, you don't need to get more than two, three verses in before suddenly you realize we're on a new track. We're on a different track than we were in the Psalms. The Psalms took us up to the heights of praise. The Proverbs are down to earth. Where the Psalms were poetical or are poetical, the Proverbs are practical. These have immediate application. The Psalms brought adoration, but the Proverbs bring us application in our lives. The Psalms are about worship. The Proverbs are about work. John Corson had this to say, I like this, Psalms is to be read on your knees, Proverbs is to be read on your feet. So lace up your shoes and get ready to walk in the way of wisdom. Now understand, this very, very practical book is not a book that lacks the passion or the inspiration of the Psalms. And we're not going to miss that at all. Because remember, the same author of the Psalms, the book of praises, has authored the Proverbs. Oh, not David, not Solomon, but the Spirit of the living God. And where His Spirit breathes His Word, there is truth, and there is inspiration, and there is excitement in these things. The book of Proverbs is a sleeves rolled up, boots to the ground, how-to training manual for living the Christian life. 
This is the book now we come to where suddenly the Lord begins to pour out. Here's how you live. We've talked about living righteously, following after the Lord, having wisdom in our daily dealings. What does that look like? The Proverbs will tell us. This book will illuminate that for us. You could almost call it the Idiot's Guide to Wisdom. (laughs) I kind of like that. The only problem with that is that, as Solomon points out, fools rarely pay attention to this book. So an idiot probably wouldn't pick this book up unless they had a moment of clarity and realized what an idiot they were, (laughs) which I have. (laughs) Now don't for a moment, as we open up Proverbs, do what I did many years ago, and that's discount this book as a boring manual. As a manual that's just filled with so many different individual Proverbs that it's, it's valuable to pull one out when you need it, pull this one out here, pull that one out there, but as a whole, who really you know, has the time to read through this book? Well, Billy Graham, almost every day of his life, has read Proverbs. He reads a chapter a day. Here's a man of wisdom and insight. Don't think of this as a... This is not your HP printer manual, okay? This is not the how-tos on occasion where you're not sure what to do and you need some wisdom on that, so you start to search and find just that one little nugget to pull out. There's a feast here that we are invited to eat. And it is a practical and applicable feast. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And so many Christians ask the question, How? How exactly do I get up in the morning and go to church? Is that how I live a life worthy of my calling? No. You know, your attendance here this morning is simply, as we've talked about, training. It's preparation for living life worthy of the calling. It's not what happens, and here's what happens out there. But how do I go about that in my daily life? You know, paying the bills, going to work, taking care of my family. How do I walk in a manner worthy of the calling? Well, further down in Ephesians 4. Paul had this to say after talking about the futility of the lifestyle of the Gentiles. He writes this. You did not learn Christ in this way. Side note. And get comfortable because we're going to be here for a bit this morning. You did not learn Christ this way. One of the biggest problems that I see in the church today is trying to do Christ like the world does things. I just got called yesterday from a good friend of mine who's going to be down in uh, next month down in Seattle doing a seminar with his church, and and he's talking about the, the the title he gave me. What he wants me to speak on is is equipping and empowering people to do their ministry. Okay, equipping and empowering, and you got to equip. Uh, you, you don't send someone out equipped but not empowered, and you don't send someone out empowered but not equipped. And and I'm hearing him talk this this lingo, this language that I've heard so many times before, and he's talking about strategies of ministry and, and how you go about church and the business plan. And I'm listening, and I finally said, what do you mean by empower? He said, well, you know, you, you've got to empower people. You, you don't just train them. You give them, you, you empower them. And I said, I empower them? You empower them? I said, listen, if, if I come and talk about this, I will talk about the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're okay with that, then I'll come down and, and, and speak. And he said, no, that's great. And I just have this sense, and I, and I know that this particular church, um, I know happens to have been wrapped up for years and years and years and trying to be on the cutting edge of how to do church. You did not learn Christ this way, Paul says. 
He says, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. But again, the question arises, if we're really looking at what we're reading, if we really want to apply these things, how do I lay aside the old self and how do I then put on the new? A man by the name of Charles Bridges wrote a commentary on Proverbs that was published in 1846. This is what he had to say. While other parts of the scripture show us the glory of our high calling, the book of Proverbs instructs us in detail how we should walk so that we are worthy of this calling. We look into the book of Proverbs as if we were using a microscope and view all the minute details of our Christian walk. If the Psalms bring a glow to the heart, the book of Proverbs makes the face to shine. This is amazing to me, and I I see the the wisdom of God even in the placement of Scripture because we come out of the Psalms excited, glorified, looking to the Lord, going up, and now we say, all right, let's put wheels on this car. Let's get from here to there. Let's talk about our part in walking with the Spirit of God, lives actually changed, not just lives spinning our wheels in the same place, moving forward. Now some background. The opening verse tells us these are the Proverbs of Solomon, the Mishle of Shloma. He wrote the original book or scroll, which was actually, the original was chapters 1 through 24. There are 31 in Proverbs. He wrote 1 through 24 originally as a scroll and as a complete work. About 200 or so years, maybe a little longer, after Solomon's death, Chapters 25 through 29 was added. Now, 25 through 29 are also the words of Solomon. But they were collected, as you'll see in chapter 25, by scribes in the day of Hezekiah. They began to go through and and find more of these Proverbs of Solomon's, put them together, and then the book grew a little bit more. The last two chapters were then added, and they contain the words of men other than Solomon, which is interesting to me. Chapter 30 is written by Agur, the oracle or the prophet, and he is a prophet. Listen to this. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. Just a little preview. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? And so Agur gives a prophecy of Jesus, begins talking about Jesus in chapter 30. We'll get there in this great book. Chapter 31 concludes the book with the wise words of a king's mum. It's actually the mother of a king named Lemuel. We'll talk about who Lemuel is when we get there. But King Lemuel's mother tells him some things which then King Lemuel writes down in chapter 31. And it's a stern warning against the drinking of wine. And it's a glorifying statement of a woman of worth. So we get to end up with wine and women, which is a nice way to end the book. (laughs) Solomon (laughs) Solomon is the primary writer, however, of this work through whom God authored this wealth of practical wisdom 
practical, applied wisdom. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29 says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Down in verse 32 of 1 Kings 4, it tells us that Solomon also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Of those 3,000 proverbs here in the book of Proverbs, God specifically preserved 915. That's how many we're going to cover over the next few weeks, months, however long we're here. And that includes the words of Agur and King Lemuel's mother. Why only these? Why, if we know Solomon wrote 3,000, why didn't God preserve, why didn't he bring, why doesn't the Bible have all 3,000 of them? Because all 3,000 Proverbs were not necessary. All 3,000 Proverbs did not point the direction God wanted to point. Not that they were bad. Not that they pointed a, a, a wrong direction, but the practicality of this book, gang, these 915 are God-selected because they are God's practical advice for living a life of faith. These put together for that reason. Now one more note before we get back and, and look at these opening verses. Solomon. Solomon is the wisest man in history ever to play the fool. The tragedy of Solomon's life is having the massive amount of wisdom, God-breathed, God-given wisdom, that he asked for early on in his rule. God gave it to him. The tragedy of, of his life is that for all these great godly sayings, he cashed out his own wisdom in a vain attempt to find pleasure somewhere else. The man who knew the answers rejected the answers to try and find satisfaction in wine, women, wealth, and human wisdom. And in the end, Solomon would end up saying, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 8. His final declaration, gang, may sadly have been more a statement of truth than a statement of faith. And the truth is, we don't know whether we'll see Solomon in heaven or not. We don't know if he's even going to be there. At the end of Solomon's life, he turned from God. He began to follow the gods of all his many wives. And that's the last thing we hear of Solomon, is that he, he disregarded the Lord as God. He did not follow the Lord like his father David did. Will we see Solomon? I don't know. Now the upside, the good news, is that he wrote these Proverbs before he took that plunge. Alright? So he wrote this at a time of faith. He wrote this at a time where truly following after God and, and receiving the Word of God. Uh, so we, we know where his heart was as he wrote. But even that being understood, we're not going to study and read the book of Proverbs because Solomon was such a great guy. We study and we read the book of Proverbs because these are the words of the one who is wisdom. These are the words of the greater than Solomon. These are the words of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, By his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures. Which means if there's any wisdom, any knowledge, any discernment or discretion in this book of Proverbs, they are from Christ. Because it all ties back to Him, and it all comes from Him. 
Proverbs, gang, is going to instruct us in the wisdom and the ways of Jesus. Let's look at them. Chapter 1, verse 1 again. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom. Now now he's going to begin by saying, this is why I'm putting these together. It's for this purpose. To know wisdom and instruction. To discern the sayings of understanding. To receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the naive. To the youth, knowledge, and discretion. Solomon launches the book now with ten seemingly synonymous words. You might read these words and skip over them thinking, well, they're just different words for wisdom or for knowledge. You know, they're just different ways of saying the same thing. Well, they're not. They seem synonymous, but they are not the same. Solomon begins with a list of words. Why does he do this? Well, if you were going to buy a car... One of the things you do when you sit down and, and begin to talk with the sales rep is you talk about the options. What's available in this particular model year? What goes in? We have a, a Kia Soul. I was waiting for the Spirit. They didn't have it, so we bought the Soul. <laughs> and it's got these little, these little uh, speakers in the door with a red light around the speaker. And, and you can set the red light to... To go with the music. You know, if you really got the bass thumping, the red light will flash with it. So here I am driving down the road, and I got lights down here. It's like. (laughs) My kids love it. It's a little much for me. But it was one of the options that we had. What Solomon is doing here, same thing if if you buy a computer. Or these days, even a cell phone. You remember the days when a cell phone, the option was it had buttons? <laughs> you know, it was the shape and maybe the color, but that was about it. Now, smartphones. Smartphones. Just showing us how stupid we really are. That's what they're all about. Amazing. I bought a new computer this last week, a laptop. I was on the phone for an hour and a half with Ashley Lichtenstein. <laughs> I kid you not. I said, have you ever been to Liechtenstein? She said, no, no, I just, I, I get asked that a lot, but we talked through all the options, what's available, and I, my mind was spinning. Solomon begins with ten options. But of these ten options, none are optional. This is the package deal. This comes with the purchase. This is with the purchase price, the purchase price, by the way, not paid by you or me, but paid by Jesus. This is the deal. If you want to live a life worthy of the calling, here is what God is offering. Here is what He calls you to. And here are the ten words written out. You might jot down the meaning behind them. The distinction of these words. Wisdom in verse 2. Wisdom in verse 2. And I'm not going to take the time right now to give you the Hebrew words. Um, If you'd like those, I can get those to you. You can ask me for those. But the word in the Hebrew literally for wisdom means skillful. Skillfulness. You know, well-skilled, trained, if you will. That's wisdom. Instruction. Instruction's interesting because it's literally in the Hebrew chastisement or discipline. It's not just sitting in a class being instructed. It is being disciplined to the task, to the job. It is being chastised where you need to be to stay on path. It's the discipline of a father who loves his children. The book of Hebrews talks about in chapter 12. The Lord disciplines those whom He loves. Well, why does He do that? Because it's part of the promise. It's part of the package to help you walk a life that is in, uh, in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. The third word is understanding. There in the latter part of verse 2. Wisdom, instruction, uh, understanding. 
to discern the sayings of understanding. Well, understanding is discernment. Discernment. To discern things. That's to be able to think them through and, and, and understand and, and grasp the nuances of things. Verse 3 is fascinating to me. The first word there is wise behavior. To receive instruction in wise behavior. What is wise behavior? Well, this is a word that's rarely used in the Bible. It's used a couple of times. But it, it implies bereavement. Now listen. Wise behavior. The word means bereavement. It's learning through loss. Learning through loss. It's been said experience is the best teacher if you can afford the tuition. The cost is high sometimes to learn on your own, to learn by your own experience, to make your own choices and and receive the fallout from those choices. Solomon is saying here, if you can't afford the tuition, guess what you can do? You can get instructed by those who have already been bereaved. That's wisdom. It's wise to learn from the loss of others. I was a younger brother. I can tell you a lot about this. Learning from the loss of the one who went before me. I grew up uh, 18 months, 15 months behind my older brother Ron. And I watched everything that he did. And I saw every mistake he made. And I went the other way. And I was the golden child. (laughs) Until my parents figured out that the other way I was going was not necessarily so righteous itself. I learned things like my brother, I don't know if I've shared this before, but Ron would come home, curfew was 11 o'clock, Ron would come home at 11.05 just to push his point. I came home at 10.30, waited till my parents went to sleep and went back out. Wisdom. Wise behavior. <laughs> Learning through the loss of others. Ron's grounded. I'm having a great time. And my parents think I'm just a good, good kid. <laughs> Until the night I came back home and Dad was sitting in the chair right across from the front door. Welcome home, son. <laughs> you know. I tell you that, that you might learn from my loss, younger ones. We can be instructed by those who have already been schooled. Who are we talking about here? Solomon and David. The kings, the prophets, the judges, Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Jacob, Job, Noah, Adam, Eve. That's one of the wonders of Scripture is we receive instruction even by the loss, even by the bereavement, even by the sorrow of others. We see what they went through and we are instructed by it. I thought it was funny. Um, Ava Hoffman was over at our house the other day and and Ava, uh, most of you know Ava's from Ethiopia and and she now is... uh, Mike and Carrie's daughter. They adopted her, and she's been home for a while. And she was, she's reading one of those one of those interesting books. Uh, she asked me a question. She said, "She said, Pastor Rick, why is it always the women in the Bible who are bad?" Well, that's an interesting question. And then I looked down at the book she was holding. Bad girls of the Bible, I think, was was the title. <laughs> why is this? You know. And I said, Ava, for every bad girl, I can name ten bad boys. The truth is, everybody in Scripture, with the exception of one man, messes up. 
Everybody has sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now the thing is, if we would be wise, if we would be instructed in wise behavior, instructed in the bereavement of others, we would look at those who have gone before and say, what worked? What didn't? How did this person realize, learn how to follow God? One of the blessings of the Psalms was walking so much with David and seeing him both glorify God and mess up his life and learn how to navigate that following the wise behavior of a man who's gone before us. We can learn from their loss. Experience is the best teacher, but it doesn't have to be your experience. If we're wise enough to pick up the word and learn from those who have gone before. Paul says in Romans 15 verse 4, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now here's the thing you need to know. Whether it's from the experience of others or your own personal experience, your own loss, your own bereavement, you will be taught. I will be taught. You might say, well, I want to drop this class. <laughs> Sorry. God is not only the professor, he's also the registrar. <laughs> I want out of this school. It's not going to happen. You're here. And you can either wisely choose to learn wise behavior from others, or you're going to learn it yourself. Or you're going to be a fool. Verse 3, continuing on, the next word we see there is righteousness. Righteousness, justice, and equity. Well, righteousness is simply right behavior. It's the word tzedek in the Hebrew. You've heard the name, some of you Bible students, Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. Tzedek is righteousness or right behavior. Verse 3, justice simply means judgment for good decisions. Okay, it's, it's judgment. It's, it's thinking right, deciding things correctly. Equity is having a moral compass. A moral compass, integrity. It's being principled. That word equity. Uh, being principled in the decisions that you make. That, that what you do correctly reflects what you believe. A lot of us in the church, when it comes to living lives worthy of the calling, we know what we believe, but the behavior doesn't follow suit. That's a lack of integrity. So to have equity in life is to equalize what you say with what you do. That both are the same. Verse 4 begins to give prudence to the naive. Prudence is literally craftiness or shrewdness. I like the King James translation of this verse. It's not just to give prudence to the naive. They, They write, to give subtlety to the simple. That immediately attracted my attention. To give subtlety to the simple, because if there's one thing the simple-minded person is not, it's subtle. You've probably known a simple-minded person or two in your life, and they're the bull in the china shop. They're the one that's just acting without thinking. They're just out there doing their thing, and subtlety is not their strong suit. Listen, the Lord wants His own to learn shrewdness. And this is something, again, Christians, we can miss. That we think in in the pursuit of innocence that that means the pursuit of simple-mindedness. And it does not. The Lord wants you to be shrewd. We are not called to be stupid in the way we handle things. Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. In other words, think about what you're doing. Think about who you're sharing with. Think about how you're sharing the things that you're, you're giving out. 
Be shrewd in your behavior. Jesus said in Matthew 10.16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. He wants you to be both. In Luke 16, verse 8, a powerful verse, Jesus said, You know, the sons of this age are more shrewd in their relation to their own kind than are the sons of light. Don't be foolish. Innocent, yes. But stupid, no. We're not called to just wander around in in, in simplicity. We are called to sharpen our swords. To be wise. To be thinking people. To be in the Word. Brothers and sisters, to learn prudence. Now the last two words in this list are directed specifically to our teenagers. So I'm not sure how many teenagers even make, there are few of you who have made first service. I wouldn't have been here if I was a teenager, so just I'm admired by those of you who are. And you're sitting there going, yeah, because mom made me. Well, okay, but you're here. The last two words are for young people in particular, and they are knowledge and discretion. Knowledge and discretion. Knowledge is literally information applied. And catch that. We'll come back to that one. Knowledge is information applied. Discretion is thoughtfulness. It's thoughtfulness. I found that interesting. He said uh, there in verse 4, to give prudence and naive to the youth, knowledge and discretion. So particularly for young people, knowledge and discretion. Information applied and thoughtfulness. Why just these two directed primarily to teenagers, to the young? Well, verse 5 continues on. A wise man will hear and increase in learning. And a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Listen, my, my younger friends. It's one thing to go to school and fill your head with knowledge. It's another thing to take that knowledge and apply it to your life. That's where it begins to make sense. I remember taking math in high school and going to the teacher, and I'm sure the teacher heard it a billion times before I ever brought it up. How is this going to help me? This algebra stuff. You're using letters here with numbers. How's that going to help me in life? And he tried to explain the application. It's only now at my age that I see how some of that actually has applied. History. When I was a kid, I hated history. I've told you all before, in my teaching of the Word of God, I have had to go back and relearn history. Of course, probably because what was taught in the public school wasn't right anyway. But I've had to really go back and and consume it. Now, if you take history at Oak Harbor High School or the social sciences from Jim, thankfully we have a guy in there who's going to teach the right thing. That was free. (laughs) But there are so many things that we learn in school. It's not just about getting it in and getting on to the next level. It's about, okay, how can I apply this? Taking it, putting it to practice in life. And so knowledge for the young is an important thing to realize. You've got to take this and use it. If you don't use it, you're going to lose it. And the other word is discretion, which is thoughtfulness. Well, that makes sense to me. Thoughtfulness. It means stop. Think about what you're doing. Now, we adults can learn from that, too, especially those of us who have a little bit stormier passions, you know, emotions of an adolescent. (laughs) God's wisdom will give you pause. God's wisdom, thoughtfulness, is about stopping before you just leap out and do something 
without really thinking it through. James Dobson, I've shared this before in his series to college students several years ago called Life on the Edge. He said this, How dare that young man who I was make decisions for my life that are affecting me today? And it's a great comment. Because as a 46-year-old man, I look back at my teen years and I can remember stupid things that I did that have had an impact on me now. That if it was me now, back then, I wouldn't have done those things. But I didn't know any better. I left out without thinking. I was not thoughtful. And that's discretion. By the way, do you remember we did a similar thing to this opening of Proverbs back in Psalm 119. We looked at ten words. Ten synonyms for the word, word, in the Bible. And we went through those ten synonyms. You remember that a few weeks ago? And we took one at a time and looked at the definition. Why do that? Listen, don't let it escape your notice that there are ten words here as well. Ten words specifically applied to this idea of wisdom. The number ten in the Bible is the number of divine order. Divine order. Let me give you some examples. Ten generations in the godly line from Adam through Seth down to Noah. Genesis chapter 5. There's ten generations. Ten commandments given to Israel from the Lord there at Mount Sinai. As we saw, Psalm 119, ten words for the word. Ten Passovers are specifically mentioned in the Bible as having occurred. We know more did, but there are ten that are listed out there in different places. In Matthew chapter 6, there are ten clauses in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus tells in the Gospel of Matthew exactly, precisely, ten parables of the kingdom. In the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the I am phrase ten times. And there are many, many more. It goes on and on and on. And you can go through the Bible, go through the Scriptures, and look for the number ten and how often things happen in sets of ten. Well, why is that? Because ten signifies divine order. If you want divine order in your life, pay attention to this book. Pay attention to these words. This will bring about divine order. It's wisdom times ten. It's the fool who will go through life unchecked, not paying attention to things is the wise man, the man of understanding who increases in wisdom. You teen guys over there getting that? It is the wise man. It's the wise man who increases in wisdom. It's the fool who misses it. Verse 6. Verse 6. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. Now, I've I got to be uh, right up front with you on this one. The word translated figure, malitsa in the Hebrew, is literally an enigma. To understand an enigma, a dark saying. Some of these proverbs are going to be hard to get. Some of them will seem enigmatic to us. We'll read them and go, huh? That's kind of where well, it must belong to the ancients. No, it doesn't. There are enigmas in Scripture. There are difficult passage, I, I, passages. I've often said the book of Revelation is not difficult. It's not a hard book. There are a lot of people who open up Revelation and go, ah, close it very quickly. It's just too hard. It's too, well, you know what? I've said it's not a difficult book. That's mostly true. It is a difficult book if you're not willing to take the time to study it. It will never make sense if you just try and pop it open, read a passage, and, and head on your way. If you will sit down 
and work your way through it, it's not hard. It's not difficult. Same with the Proverbs. Same with all of these so-called dark sayings. These figures, as the word is translated there, it's not hard to understand if you will apply yourself to it. Why does God give enigmatic sayings, tough passages in the Bible? Two reasons for you this morning. Number one, the truths I mine become mine. Truths I mine become mine. Do you approach the Word of God as a treasure to be mined? Do you open up this book and say, I want to dig here. I want to go deep here. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 3 tells us, If you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Get out your shovels and get ready to dig. Remember the book of Proverbs, this is a sleeves rolled up, boots on the ground, how-to manual for godly living. And so it takes application. And it takes the willingness to dig and wait and listen and work through some of these sayings that will be dark, that will be difficult, that will be enigmatic. You see, the Lord made us, and so He knows how we work. And He knows very well that it's the things that we work for that we own. The things that we mind that become mine. Proverbs 14, verse 23 tells us, In labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. It's a good word. It's a powerful truth. In labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. You know, in all our sharing of grace and rest and peace, we can't miss, please don't miss, the value of work in a Christian life. Not work to save yourself, not work to somehow impress God, but work does something to us and in us and through us The work that we do in our Christian life is part of the application of what the Spirit is calling our hearts to. And so Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Why? Because the accurate handling of the word of truth is impressive? Because it it impresses God or brings about salvation? No. No. Because the application of the word of truth, it alters us, it forms us, and it develops in us confidence and strength and assurance in the Lord. But there's another reason I believe God has some difficult passages in Scripture. Uh, First of all, because the truths I mind become mine, but secondly, the dark sayings bring me to the light. The dark sayings cause me to want to go to the light for understanding. There are some things that God just doesn't want us to learn without Him. He puts them in His Word so that when we get to them, we go, Huh. Um, Abba, Father, can you help me with this? And He's right there. Yeah, son, let's do this together. It was great on on Friday. We've been going through talking about... Uh, in time, some revelation, some things with, with students. I've told you this that, that I'm with on Friday, and, and my daughter, Anna Maria, I gave him a little quiz. Gave him a timeline. Right out the timeline. And, and I said, put things in order based on the book of Revelation that happened in the end times. How many of you can do that? <laughs> They're like, pop quiz? Yeah, go for it. So they start writing, and I see Anna Maria over there, and she's looking. She writes something, I see her erase. I see her write. 
see her erase. She erases some more. And time came for everyone to turn it in. And Anna Marie, bless her heart, she's the last one, and I take the page from her, and I look, and it was blank. I'm like, oh. So I, I set it aside, waited until everybody left. I didn't want her to be embarrassed. And I realized in that that the fool was her dad. Anna Marie is still fresh out of Ghana. And I asked her to timeline the end times. <laughs> so I pull her back after all the kids leave. I pull her back at the table. I sit down with her and I go, okay, Anna Marie, you didn't write anything. And she goes, I didn't know how. And I said, well, let me help you. What, what don't you understand? And she said, what's the timeline? <laughs> Let's start at the beginning, you know. But you know what was great? For the next half hour, Anna Marie and I sat there and we learned about a timeline. We talked about these things. She's asking me. And and when I asked her, and this was what really I I enjoyed so much when I said, okay, Anna Marie, do you know what the tribulation is? She said, that's blood. That's that's good. Yeah. She said, "That's that's the brutal time. And I said, yeah, you know how long it is? She said, yeah, seven years. And I said, where do you think it would go if, if the church is called home here and... And Jesus is coming back here. Where, where would that go? And she said, right there. And she did it. She just didn't know how to do it. She didn't know how to apply it. You know what was great about it? Father and daughter together. I was able to sit with her. That's why the Lord puts some dark sayings in Scripture. Not so that we read it and go, oh, that's weird. Let's just move on. No. So that we go, uh, Dad, what's the timeline? What does this mean? I don't get this. Now, far too often, we just close the book. And the Lord's saying, oh, don't close it. Wait. Ask me. Let's work through this together. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, we're told the disciples came and said to Jesus, why do you speak to the people in parables? Why not just tell them? You're always using these stories. Jesus said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been granted. Why? That doesn't seem fair. Why were the apostles, or anyone for that matter, why are some people granted the mysteries of the kingdom and other people just seem to not get it? You want to know why? Faith. Faith. It doesn't take much, but it takes faith to be granted the mysteries. It's faith that opens the eyes. It's faith God is looking for and waiting for. And Jesus goes on to say to his apostles, whoever has, to him more shall be given. And he'll have an abundance. An abundance of what, Lord? Faith. But whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. These enigmatic truths, these dark sayings, these difficult passages in Scripture, they come to light in the presence of the light. As we come to the Lord with these, they begin to make sense. They begin to unfold. They begin to open up. And that's the idea. The dark sayings turn me to the light. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, a favorite verse, You are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. The truths I mind become mine. The dark sayings come to light in the presence of the Lord. And now we come to the key verse of the entire book of Proverbs, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now I probably could have stopped after verse 6 and saved this one just for the next time we get together on this. And some of you may say, yeah, why don't you do that? I'm not going to. (laughs) Verse 7 here, gang, the fear of the Lord. Solomon will repeat this phrase 14 times in the Mishle. More than any other biblical writer, Solomon uses the phrase, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. But Solomon was not the first one to say it. First time we read it is in the book of Job. Those of you who studied through Job know, Job is probably the oldest book that we have in the Bible. The oldest book written back around the times we believe Job was a contemporary of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right around that time frame. So out of this most old book of all the books in Scripture, Job says in Job 28, verse 28, To man the Lord said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To depart from evil is understanding. What Job is saying is that early on, God Himself spoke these words. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It was God who first said it. God who first shared this. Who first interjected this phrase, the fear of the Lord, to man. So, gang, it came from Him first. And Solomon probably heard it from his father, David. David, who wrote in Psalm 111, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding of all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. So Solomon obviously was convicted by this truth. Moved by this concept of the fear of the Lord. And he processed it. And he proverbs it out before us. He catches the phrase and runs with it. Tragically... It's the last thing that a faithless Solomon ever writes. Ecclesiastes 12.13 tells us the conclusion. When all has been heard is fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. Why is that tragic? Because as we already noted, Solomon did not end well. And so the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, what's going on with this? The fear of the Lord is knowledge. Actually, the fear of the Lord is not knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I asked the guys at our shepherds meeting this last week, what does that mean? And we had a great talk, and and it, it helped shape what I'm about to tell you here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. The Hebrew word beginning there is reshif. Note this, it means the starting point. It means the first. This is where it all begins. The ten words we looked at, you know, wisdom, instruction, understanding, wise behavior, righteousness, justice, equity, prudence, knowledge, discretion, all of these things, it begins the start point of even entering into this kind of understanding. It is the fear of the Lord. This is where knowledge, gang, is applied to life. It begins with fear. You know, there have been plenty of brainy, intelligent scientifically minded, learned men and women who didn't fear the Lord. They attained knowledge, but they never applied it. Again, remember the Hebrew for knowledge is information applied. Truth applied. Anytime you see that word knowledge in the book, it's not just talking about you know, facts and figures. It's talking about knowledge applied to life that you're using, that you're working out. That you're walking in. And I think 
The greatest lie ever perpetrated against the application of knowledge in the modern world came from the speculations of a man named Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin, did you know that he only had one degree and it was not in biology? It was in theology. Darwin was a Bible major. And there, at just before his death, it was Darwin who said, I was a young man, quote, I was a young man with uninformed ideas, and I threw them out as queries and suggestions. To my astonishment, they took off like wildfire. Darwin said that. At the same time, close to his death, Darwin suggested to a Christian friend that she go speak to his servants and tenants and neighbors. And she said, what do you want me to speak to them about? Darwin replied, Christ Jesus, what else is there? And yet, here we sit in a world that pronounces evolutionary theory as scholastic fact, even when science has backpedaled for hundreds of years. The application of truth and knowledge, here's the deal, gang. It begins with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Before we go, and this is quick, I want you to jot three things down about the fear of the Lord. I'm going to shoot these out to you quickly, and you think through these over the next week or so. First off, the fear of the Lord ignites holy awe. The fear of the Lord ignites holy awe. And this is more than religious reverence. We've used this word fear rather loosely in the church over the years just to be awe. No, just awe. Okay. It's like that feeling you get when you walk into an austere cathedral. Wow. You know, this is amazing. Look at the artwork and the stones and the architecture. It's not that kind of awe we're talking about. The fear of the Lord ignites holy awe. This is a fear that literally fires the heart. It turns stone-cold indifference into red-hot receptivity. What are you talking about? Believers especially, listen up. It is not our place to soft-pedal the gospel of Jesus. It is not our place to try and make easy for people that which is hard. To water down the truth of the awesome, ineffable, terrible, infinite God. Hebrews 10.31 It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let it be terrifying. Allow a friend of yours, a, a family member who doesn't understand Jesus, allow them to struggle with the terror of God. With the fear of who He is. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Tell you what, the God of the Bible blows Allah away when it comes to power and awe and might. Allah is a puny tribal God who really doesn't even exist. God is awesome. God is terrifying. And Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Not having plenty of coffee on a Sunday morning and extra muffins. Well, I went to church because when I walked in the door, they had a feast. It was great. And they were so nice. And when the pastor talked, he gave me three principles for life, and I took them home and applied them. That's not what saves people. 
What saves people? It begins with the fear of the Lord. Let him be terrifying. Let him be fearful. I heard a song years ago. I wasn't sure if I was going to share this because it's a little, little on the edge. But it's a group called Jacob's Trouble. I think they did one album. It was a Christian band. still have it somewhere. And the song was called You Scare the Hell Out of Me. And the chorus, <laughs> they said it over and over. You scare the hell, scare the hell, scare the hell out of me. Gang, listen. <laughs> They're on to something. They're on to something. I want the hell scared out of me. Don't you? If standing on the precipice between caught up to heaven and going into the pit of fire, I don't want to go there. That scares me. It's okay. It's all right to be frightened by that. It's okay for somebody to come to Jesus at first, at the beginning, because they're afraid of what might happen if they don't. That's okay. As we've talked about in here, Jesus talked about hell far more often than He talked about heaven. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. Problem is, when people ease into faith, it's just as easy to ease right back out. When people come to church and it's just light and fluffy and, you know, pop, then it's easy just to kind of, it doesn't really do anything. It doesn't really change me. You know, I'm still the same guy. I still do the same stuff. I just go to church on occasion, you know, with the fam. And after a while, why would you do that? What a waste of your time. But if you enter into the fear of the Lord, something begins to change. That's where it starts. To shudder at His majesty. To tremble at His supremacy. That is a fear worth having. And listen, listen. when I get there, when I sense His imposing awesomeness, His fearful glory, and then discover that this awesome, amazing, even terrifying God loves me, well, now I move to a different kind of fear. I move to the fear of the Lord that awakens a humble adoration. Holy awe becomes humble adoration. It's Job crying out in Job 42, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. I see who you are. It's David crying in Psalm 51, verse 4, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions against you. You only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. It's the thief on the cross, hanging there next to Jesus, who turns to Jesus in that horrifying moment and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What did Jesus say? Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. How do you think the thief felt the moment Jesus said that? One moment he's dying in his sin, the next moment he has the promise of salvation instantly. Did it lessen the pain in his hands, in his chest as he struggled to breathe? No. But suddenly, Jesus said, I'm going to be with him. Jesus said, today, today, I'm going where He is. And it changed everything. The fear of the Lord, beginning with that place of holy awe, shifting to a humble adoration. 
And then finally, the fear of the Lord, gang, it develops a heartfelt assurance. I know my God is capable of saving me. You know, it's the whole idea of being at the top of the burning building. Who do you want to save you? I want, I want Chris. I want Chris Byer. Have you seen Chris? He's a firefighter. He comes to the bridge. I want Chris. <laughs> I'm looking down. Chris, I'm your man. Because I know he can get me out of the building. You know? I don't want Oscar milk toast. I'll save you, Rick. No, it's not what I need. Thank you. I have a heartfelt assurance when I know not only that he's awesome, but that he loves me. Suddenly now, I'm walking with this assurance that he's going to get me where I need to go. Proverbs 14.26 says, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. Proverbs 19.23, The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, listen, untouched by evil. I love this book. The fear of the Lord, it's where it all begins. I never leave off, by the way, that holy awe. I begin with the holy awe, I still have it. And I only grow deeper in humble adoration that every time we worship, every time I come before the Lord, Lord, I love what Jim said on Thursday night. We had this running conversation about the friendship of God. How does that work? Because he's awesome. And Jim said, you know, I I can accept that he is friend to me. It's just hard for me to be friend to him. Because I, I, you know, he can call me Jim. He can call me Bud. He can call me pal. I'm still going to call him Lord. And I think that's a pretty right attitude. And I grow stronger and stronger in the heartfelt assurance in which His children take refuge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What is the end? If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, what is the end of knowledge? You know, it's going to end. There is coming that day when knowledge will be done away. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 13.8, If there's knowledge, it will be done away. So what is the end of knowledge? Listen, Jeremiah 31.34 They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. The end of knowledge is when the Lord is known by all. That's where we're headed. That's what the Mishlei is all about. The book of Proverbs is about knowing Him and literally putting our shoes on and walking with Him. Do you want to go? I sure do. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we just open up. This is introduction. We're at the beginning. The the Rashid. The beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And we begin here, Lord, in this place. We fear You as an awesome and holy and perfect God. Father, we hold You in highest awe and esteem. As we worship you, as we're about to do this morning, we do it, Lord, acknowledging you're just awesome. We are but nothing before you except that you have chosen to love us. And so, Lord, we adore you. And I pray, Father, that all would rest in the assurance of your salvation, of your strong saving hand. 
Lord, if anyone comes into the barn this morning without an assurance of salvation, I pray it would happen today. I keep asking this, Lord, and I will continue to ask. Give us opportunity to pray with and encourage someone to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today. And Father, Your will be done as we worship You and love You in Jesus' name. Amen.